there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to follow your interests in the arts into the world of tech startups, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a classically trained musician and composer who wrote hit songs for people like Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel. And he's gone on to become a serial entrepreneur, founding a number of successful startup businesses inside of and outside the music industry. But before I introduce you to Steve Rimland, the CEO of Aimcast, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter, and it comes out bright and early on Monday mornings with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is is right there. And I want to invite you to check out my weekly live streaming show on LinkedIn, where I share coronavirus relevant career advice, interview guests live, and this is the most important part. Take your questions and feature your comments. Just click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn so you'll know when the show is live and you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Steve Remland, the chief executive officer of Aimcast, which is a platform where colleagues can publish audio and visual podcasts to spark conversations, share knowledge and generate insights. Prior to founding Aimcast in the summer of 2019, Steve was the founder and CEO of Medic Digital. That was a platform he built for Fortune 500 corporations that are within the pharmaceutical world to help them engage and connect with their colleagues. One of Steve's first ventures in creating social networks started in early 2009 with a company called Locker Blogger, a company he started allowing athletes to connect with their fans. Steve began his professional life after college as a composer and a musician, playing on hundreds of albums, including working closely with megastars, including Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel as a songwriter. Steve, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your green tea and ready to go? I am caffeinated and ready to go. And Andrea, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. I am so incredibly excited to allow you to (laughs) help our young listeners see all the possibilities that lay before them. Because Holy cow, what a professional journey you've had. It's been quite a road. (laughs) It's been quite a road. And I was, before we hop on that road and start all the twists and turns and the off ramps and on ramps that you've had arriving to where you are today, I thought maybe we could kick things off, Steve, by learning a bit more about what 
Incast is, the company where you work right now, the company that you started in the summer of 2019, and get better insight into this incredible platform that you've created. Yeah. So Incast was a platform that I started that you know kept pulling me back to my mission and purpose in life. Aimcast is a multimedia podcast platform that communicates, educates, engages, and shares insights to help make a company's products or services better. So we're working right now, and one of my passions is to work in the pharma industry for lots of different reasons, but really to help shape and share knowledge from top doctors in the world to be able to collaborate with each other in their own voice, share knowledge back and forth, and to have a place to do that that's effective and efficient. Creating a multimedia podcast platform by taking you know, a Netflix channel series and episode approach and being able to make that multimedia, so being able to attach other media to a video or audio podcast engine like image galleries, surveys, quizzes, live polls, PDFs, documents, and things like that to create engagement and more engagement around that particular piece of content has really taken off inside the corporate environment. And today, even before today, everybody, even let's say you're a sales rep, you feel disconnected. You know, you don't feel connected to home office today in our unprecedented times of COVID. You know, you don't feel connected to your team or to your community. This really helps foster that team spirit, that turning those teams into communities that enables a manager of that team to become a better teacher and a leader. Time and time again, the engagement and connection around a piece of content where they could share content with their peers, people could share best practices of how they're doing things or accomplishing goals, all helps to strengthen that community, which helps to strengthen that company. So it sounds like the coronavirus has actually perhaps even helped business at Aimcast. Is that the case? It, it has absolutely helped help the business. I mean, today we're living in uh, Zoom fatigue, as they call it, right? And it's not another Zoom call is what I hear from all our clients. And we're helping to make that more fun, make that more interactive, make that a more entertaining experience as well as a learning experience. So yes, it has helped us only because, you know, you keep iterating and innovating and you know, it's important in life with whatever you do that through things that are happening, whether it's in your community, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in the world, that you look for that opportunity that could come from what's going on. And that's exactly what happened with Incast. So who are your target customers, Steve? Our target customers with Incast are corporations that have anywhere from a thousand employees on up, those are our perfect targets and the global audiences. And if Facebook and LinkedIn are social platforms in which the philosophy is the more the merrier, it sounds like Aimcast is kind of like a private party where you get to control <laughs> the guest list. 
It is. It's, uh, it's, that's a great way to put it. Oh, wow. I like, I'm going to steal that. You know, we give the platform for people to make their own private parties this is exactly what we do. So we are just the supplier of the platform that enables them to do exactly what you said, make their own private party. And they can control their playlist like a DJ. Exactly what happens, right? So the whole, everything needs to be curated in the world. Um, and I learned that from working with uh, one of the greatest people I learned from, which was Jimmy Iving, who was founder of Interscope Records with Ted Fields, started Beats, went over to Apple Music. His whole thing was that everything needs to be curated. And especially in music, right? Everything needs to be curated. You know, you could have 50 million songs, but how do you know which ones to play? So Spotify enables you to find it from your friends. They do have now curated DJ lists, but the whole thing about Beats Music and Apple Music was all about that curated list from the DJ, from the Apple editors, from people that curate those songs in that particular style that you might like. What is it about this business at Aimcast that has captured your imagination? I can hear the passion in your voice. <laughs> the thing that captures my imagination is communication. And how do you communicate today, really? And we're working with something, you know, with email still. And people think everyone's reading their emails. And an interesting stat I just read the other day was that people from just even work email could spend four hours reading and answering emails per day. Now, if you couple that with your personal emails, it goes up to six hours a day. How could you get anything done? How do you even read all these emails and all these barrage targeted things from communications and what's important, what isn't important? I have no way to tell till I open it and spend time, right? So what excites me about this is that this could actually help bring people together, transfer ideas and knowledge, communicate easier, communicate in a way that people could also multitask as they're being communicated to, and really solve problems. So what are you focusing much of your attention on now as the chief executive officer? We're doing this interview at the end of November, and we're a couple of days away from Thanksgiving. You started Aimcast in the summer of 2019. Where are your energies going? My energies currently today are on partnerships that we can make to help be complementary to each other with other companies, to take some of their services and package them with us and resell them to make our platform better, as well as them reselling us with their services to make the platform better. And we're having great success in some of the partnerships that we're forging today. Can you give us an example of the type of partnership, the type that you're looking to forge? So where would the where would the synergies lie? So I'll give you one quick example. Anything, well, a platform is only as good, like a TV is only as good. You could have an 8K TV, but it's only as good as the content that you put into it, right? It's the same thing with, you know, any type of, you know, platform. It's only as good as the content that's put into that platform. So we're doing deals today currently you know, how do you make your content better? How do you make your content more entertaining? How do you make your content more engaging? So yes, we have a great platform that's proven and proven time and time again to create tremendous success inside of 
Fortune 100, 500, 1,000 companies, organizations, nonprofits, that some of them that we work with, universities. But we're looking to give now these content creators tools to be able to make their content more exciting. Cool. So in our Espresso Shots interview, and by the way, check out show notes to see if Steve's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. You mentioned that you don't really enjoy the managing part of the job and your talents and gifts lie more in the creativity piece. And that's really what you enjoy. And you recommended that our young listeners, as they curate their own careers over the course of their professional life, really build a valuable network and surround themselves with people whose skills are maybe complementary to theirs. So how have you done that at Aimcast? I've been fortunate to find great people that believe in your mission and idea, right? You have to find those people. So I found that in the Bob Pearsons of the world, who was chief communication officer for Dell, Michael Dell's right-hand guy, that believed in what I was doing. He was also at Novartis. He also started a agency with Jim Weiss, or was one of the first employees of W2O ad agency that just sold to a private equity firm for several billion dollars. Those are the type of people that you need to get excited about what you're doing to be able to help shape your mission. And hopefully that's comforting to our young listeners, right? Because you don't have to be able to do it all. You can't do it all. Or if you try to do it all, you can't do it well. So it's all about that. Do what you love and then fill in the gaps with other people. And what's the important thing there is that you just don't want other people to work with you and it just to be a job. Right, because you're not going to get anywhere with that. You need someone that believes in that mission, that believes that there is a problem to solve with what you're doing and help you to solve that problem. You can't just take someone that wants to just do it for the money or do it for the job and has 50 other things going on outside of what they're doing with you. You want someone to come in and make it the focus of what they're going to do for the next several years to help you get this thing off the ground. If someone had only met you, let's say, 10 years ago, Steve, when I think, if that's around the right time, that you really started your non-musical entrepreneurial ventures, do you think they'd be surprised to know that you had gone to the Eastman School of Music and studied music composition, arranging, piano technology, and music education? Huh, that's a great question. The simple answer is, it's none of my business what people think. And that's, you know, I've carried my life around that way. I think we live life in chapters, right? You know, we have different times of our lives where people come in and out of your life. Some people have stayed, some people have left, some people have just fallen off. I think we're evolving every day, right? The only constant that we have in life is that we're always changing. Our life around us is always changing. And why not? I've seen other people from, you know, people that own sprinkler companies start a technology company. I've seen doctors get into technology. Technology is what is running our life today, right? And it permeates every part of life. So why not? For me, when I was at 
Eastman School of Music and Juilliard Prep before that. I was always interested in technology with music, and I'll tell you why. So when you write and you compose, when you're in Eastman School of Music, you're spoiled, right? You've got the best of the best. There's pretty much in the undergraduate class, they only take 100 people each class, right? And then they divide it up even further around, you know, all the instruments that they take, right? Because they can't just have 100 violinists, right? They've, they've got to divide it up so that they have an orchestra, they have other musicians, right, that you're going to be with for the next four years, right? So when you're writing, it's easy to couple together all these musicians and then hear your music back, right? What technology evolved to for music was that if I'm writing something and I have a synthesizer or a sampler, I could hear my music back within 10 minutes of me sitting down on the keyboard and just playing it in. So I don't need the Village Vanguard had a when I got out of school and I was in New York City, you could bring your charts and have the Bob Brookmeyer bands on Monday nights, you know, read your music. And there was lots of different composers uh, writing for big bands and um, jazz and stuff like that to hear your music back. You had the Bob Brookmeyer band able to play it on site, right? Same thing with Eastman. I was able to have those musicians play it on site. So when you get out of that environment, how do you hear it? And that's where technology got me excited as how it was evolving, it became more and more real. The instruments started more and more real. And Hans Zimmer, sometimes he uses an orchestra, but 90% of the time when he makes these film scores, he was using his samples. So it really permeates every aspect of what anybody's doing today. In another interview you gave, and in fact, it was to Thrive Loud's Lou Diamond, you shared a story and you shared it during our espresso shots, and I'm going to ask you to share it one more time, about what your first music composition teacher taught you, that there are only 12 notes. Right. There are only 12 notes. That's what he taught me. And there's only 12 notes, and it's all how you combine them and arrange them. And that's it. And it's the same that goes for life. Everything is built on top of something else. And you just have to find that and transform that a little bit, add a couple extra pieces and make it your own. I think that is so true. And as I listen to you, Steve, I am thinking about the way that the careers of so many of the hundreds of people I've interviewed have unfolded. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow let alone next year. Who would have guessed this time in 2019 that a few months later we were going to have this virus nobody had ever heard of before that was confining us to our homes such that we wouldn't be able to share Thanksgiving, even with extended family? Who would have known the way that our lives unfold and our careers is iterative? It's improv. I love that you said that. <laughs> you're actually, what you said in the other interview too, is, uh, you know, you're riffing on life, right? But at the same time, we have to trust life. We have to trust life and where it's guiding us. And really, the only thing we have the choice in. So everyone talks like this was a failure. That was a failure. Sometimes people call it to people's names and say, you're a failure. They're looking at it the whole wrong way, right? It's not up to you. Right. A lot of things aren't up to you. You know, you ask people in commercial real estate that were buying up buildings right before the pandemic, you know, how they feel today with all their office space or, you know, 
people that built Hudson Yards in New York City, which is a fabulous place, totally empty today, right? Who could predict this stuff? Everything, you don't have control of whether something's going to be successful or not. Yes, you need to work hard at it. Yes, you need to give it, you know, a thousand percent for it to have the chance to be successful. But whether it's successful or not, whether it's a song, whether it's a company, whether it's a product, you have no idea. And that only comes through the blessing of life. I call it God. Some people call it an energy. Some people call it karma. Whatever you want to call it, it's fine. But realize that it's not you, that you are just the person carrying it out. If it's going to be successful or not is not up to you. So then what happens, right? So something's not as successful as you thought or something didn't take off. The question that you need to ask in your mind at that point, and unfortunately, I've been able to ask that question many times or too many to count, what could I learn from this? And once you get into that mindset of when something doesn't work, what can I learn from this? It takes on a whole new life of its own because then you're going to get that chance to go back and do it again and again if that's what you decide to do. But you can get it right. You can get it where it gets adopted, that things just start to take off. And that's really, I think you said it, is the magic in life, is that you know you can't control anything if it's going to be successful or not. All you can control, and that's what Viktor Frankl's book speaks about, A Man's Search for Meaning, which is a must-read for everybody, is your reactions and choices that you make. You can't convince someone to love you. You can't convince someone to do anything, really. You can't force someone to do anything. It's you. And everything is you. And when you realize that, your whole world is going to change for the better. You're going to get more at peace with yourself, with everything else around you. I want to bottle that. And my friends, that is what you call a growth mindset. I'm going to throw another book at you. Dr. Carol Dweck, her book, Mindset, is a must-read. If you learn to adopt a growth mindset in which everything is about learning and iterating and continuing to adapt and pivot, you're going to crush it. You will absolutely crush your professional life and you will crush your personal life. That doesn't mean to say that shitty things won't happen. Yeah, they will, but you'll be able to move forward. You'll learn from what's happened and you'll take Let it forward Let me give you a you. great example of this from one of the greatest minds that I was able to meet and a brilliant thinker. And I'll just give you a quick example of something that happened and where someone took the idea and it took off into a huge product that everybody knows. So I was fortunate when I was working with Jimmy Iveen and Steve Berman at Interscope Records to be part of a meeting with Steve Jobs. And what happened was that Steve Berman, who was the marketing head and my boss at Interscope Records, had this idea that he blurted out to Steve Jobs, you know, at the end of a meeting. And he said, Steve, I think it would be great to make colored headphones. And with that, Steve Jobs looked up and he said, and there was silence for like two minutes. And then he says to Steve Berman, it's a horrible idea. 
I envision of a, a society of everyone walking around with white earbuds. So that was that he felt about, you know, two inches tall. Here's his big idea that he was giving to the founder and creative mind behind Apple. And next day, Jimmy Ivins, who also heard that, sees Dr. Dre jogging up the beach in California, in Malibu. And Dr. Dre wants to start a sneaker company. And he said, let's start a headphone company. And they called it Beats. And Steve Berman got his colored headphones. <laughs> Not only that, Apple ended up when uh, Tim Cook bought Beats, they later bought it back, not mainly for the headphones, but also for Jimmy and uh, Trent Reznor that were running Beats Music as well for $3.2 billion. So yes, the world did want colored headphones. And at the time, Beats were you know the most popular headphone. I mean, Jimmy and Steve were marketing geniuses. And they created and evolved the headphone to become a whole industry in, in, in and of itself. What a great so story. never give up on your never give up on your passion. I mean, you have to have the passion for something to be able to stay in it because you get tested, right? Everybody gets tested in life. And you're gonna get tested. Whatever you start, something's gonna push on you that fifty people are gonna tell you it's gonna fail. People aren't gonna like your idea. What you've spoken about, even with time for coffee and things that we we've spoken about, don't listen to the noise. Believe in yourself. Listen to what you feel. That's never going to take you off stray. I mean, half people's lives spend their time listening to people that tell them this and tell them that. Why? I, I never got that. And, and I never even got that when I was doing music, right? I played classical music. I studied with some of the greatest minds in the world. And I was fortunate to be able to do that. But that really taught me about life. I mean, don't listen to what other people tell you is not going to work. Do what you feel. Do what you're passionate about. You'll always get there. You've got to have that lightning in a bottle. That lightning in the bottle has to ignite you. I mean, if you look at Edison, and what did Thomas Edison say? I learned 100 or 200 ways, you know, not to invent the light bulb. (laughs) He didn't look at it like every time he learned was a failure. He said, I learned 200 ways on how not to create that light bulb, right? It might have been 210, but he never gave up. He believed in it. And that's what happens in life. You know, your parents are going to tell you, be that. Your friends are going to tell you, oh, you're never going to do that and you're never going to make money at it. When I was going to go to music school, you know, I remember my parents looking at me and saying, how are you going to support yourself after and I said to them, I'm going to figure it out. And I did. And that's what you got to do. You, if you're passionate about something, you're going to do it and you're going to change the world. And if you listen to Steve Jobs' commencement speech, you know, it's like, how do you find your passion? And that, that's actually the bigger question, right? Yes, you know, How do you find what your passion is exactly. about? A lot of people, first of all, you got to understand who you are to find what you're passionate about. So who you are? You know, do you think you just get up every day and you get up because you just get up? No. I mean, there's, there's, there's God. You are a piece of God, right? You have a soul. Realize that you're sacred. Realize that you count. Everyone's important. Everyone from anywhere is important. It's not, well, this guy's a janitor and this guy's a plumber. This guy's a renowned surgeon. 
Okay, that's what you do, right? It's not who you are, but it's what kind of doctor are you? What kind of plumber are you? Are you compassionate? Do you have empathy? Are you nasty? I mean, what kind of person are you? So first, you got to get to that place. And people really have to understand the assets that they have inside of them. Yes, you know your faults, but it's a bigger problem if you don't know the assets that you have to be able to inspire and motivate others. So find those assets that you have with yourself. You're unique. You have some kind of talent. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this universe. You have something to give, right? Everyone has something to give. Everyone is creative. Everyone wants to be creative. Just do it. And then don't listen to the outside noise. You know, I always say, what other people think of me is none of my business. You know, I'm trying to do the best I can, right? Yes, do I make mistakes? Thousand percent. Who doesn't? But don't get bogged down on them. You got to keep moving and then fix it later. You know, it's no time to try to fix mistakes when you're struggling, when you've hurt this person and stuff like that. Just keep going. Don't stop. Keep going. That, that's what a lot of people do. They look in the rear view mirror their whole life. If I would have done this, if I would have done that, that would have been different. That would have been this guy's fault. That's what, It's your fault. No one's saying to you, stay stuck. No one's saying to you, you need to do this. You need to do that. Get out. Find that passion. And how do we find that passion? Whatever moves you, whatever you're moved to do, and whatever that you want to wake up every day and I can't do anything but this, that's what your mission and your purpose in your life is and go after that. Beautiful. And if you don't know where your God-given gifts are, somebody by the name of Dr. Howard Gardner, who's a Harvard psychologist, developed what he calls, it's it's sort of the anti-IQ exam. So he's the guy who 40 years ago said the IQ test, the so-called intelligence test is too narrow. We all have gifts. We all have things that come easily to us. And so often we dismiss them because they come so easily to us. And we think that everybody can do it, but they can't. And he developed eight types of intelligences, whether it's clearly what Steve, one of his many gifts, being in music, or maybe it's dance, or maybe it's communication, or maybe it's your ability to connect with people, intrapersonal or interpersonal. So check out Dr. Howard Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, and that can begin to show you, kind of lean into your gifts, combine it with your interests, and that's a good place to start. So Steve, that was just Unbelievable. I want to flashback very quickly to when you were in college at Eastman getting your bachelor's in music. Just (laughs) very, very quickly. Did you know, your parents are asking you, did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Well, I had a good idea. Well, kind of a good idea. So if we take back my whole music journey, grew up middle class, lower middle class, right outside of New Haven, Connecticut, uh, which Yale was right there. And my parents had, you know, a small dinner party. I remember when I was very young and I used to be able to pick songs that were playing 
on the piano. So I had a good ear to be able to play the notes. And someone noticed that and said to my parents, well, give them lessons. And I started and I took to it pretty easily. Music just, you know, came easily for me. And I got, when I was eight years old, believe it or not, I started studying with Bruce Simons, who was the chair of the piano department at Yale. And at Yale, they didn't have an undergraduate for music. It was all, you know, master's degree students uh, studying at Yale. So I got, at a very young age, to learn big thinking. And it was more about how do you interpret these composers? Really, that's what it was about. And that, that carried me through because, right, I'll give you an example of an orchestra, right? Everybody could play, you know, Tchaikovsky or Mozart or Brahms or Bartok or whoever, but it's only the interpretation that makes that piece good or not. And that's really like the get across. And that's how you connect that piece to the audience when they feel that. And that's what makes a great conductor from a mediocre conductor, how they're interpreting that work. And everyone has their own different take on that, right? It's the same piece of music. It's just how you interpret it. And you take that and then you get to college and you're with all these other people that also understand about interpretation, right? And I got kind of not bored with the classical music. I mean, I was blessed to play these great composers, but, you know, I loved technology for lots of different reasons. And I loved the pop music field. I was always playing, even from a young age, when I started playing professionally when I was 12 years old in wedding bands and bar mitzvah bands. And um, so I remember my parents driving me to different places all over to play uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs. And I was actually playing at a lot of my friends' bar mitzvahs. And I carry that through college. So wherever I was, I found bands and things like that to make money playing. I also worked a couple summers on Carnival Cruise Lines, always playing. So I was always I was always able to make money with music. And what happened was when I got out of Eastman, I was like, what do I do? It's exactly what happened to me. I'm like, okay, so where am I going to go? And I hadn't been home since pretty much like 10th grade. So I wasn't going to go back there. And I said to myself, all right, my sister's going to school in New York City, and she let me live on her dorm room floor, and there was a village voice. And I picked up the village voice looking at music opportunities, and I found an opportunity to compose music for fashion videos. So I went in, I played from my cassette tapes music that I had written in college. The guy absolutely loved it. He said, oh, could you write something for this fashion video commercial? I think it was Guess. And I said, Sure. And I went home, I wrote this piece, I put it on the synthesizer, I sequenced it with the synthesizers and with all the instruments and stuff like that. I brought it back the next day. Well, lo and behold, it looked like I didn't realize this, but 10 other people were also submitting music for the thing and mine got chosen by the client. So then he's like, okay, we're going to go in the studio and we're going to, you're going to record this. So I did, the client loved it, stuff like that. And as the owner of the agency is watching me do all this stuff, after that recording of that music for that guest commercial, he says to me, what do you want to do? I said, I like to write, I like to play. He's like, you're too good for this. He goes, I'm going to hook you up with the studio owner that I know. And you're going to go and you're going to talk to him. I think you should do studio work. So am I asking, am I fired? <laughs> like, literally, I was on the job for one day. And he's like, well, I just, 
I don't get this. He's like, this is uncanny. You got to go. You got to go do studio. You could do something bigger. So I went in to this studio. It was called Unique Recording Studios. I'll never forget it. And there was a fight in the lobby of the studio, like a real fight. And stuff was getting thrown around. And I'm like, oh, my God, what the heck is going on here? And then it turned out that the person I was supposed to interview with was one of the owners of the studio was uh, Bobby and Joanne Nathan that owned the studio. And it was a famous studio. I mean, you read about it in Mix magazine and it had all the MIDI equipment. So it was a dream for me. And I go in and the guy's like, who are you here to interview with? And I said, Bobby Nathan. He goes, all right, that's me. And that was the guy that just threw the guy out of the studio. <laughs> I was like, oh God, what the heck? So the interview lasted about 10 minutes. And he said, can you program synthesizers? At that point, barely. Not the synthesizers to the, to the, um, the depth that they had at Unique. Like they had everything. And they had all the best artists in the world coming to record there because they had all the, the greatest equipment and the people that knew how to run it. And, you know, there's so many talents that came out of there. But what happened was I said, yes. He goes, great. I want you to take the Fairlight, practice on it a little bit. You have a session tomorrow. Oh, my God. So I stayed up all night. And, you know, it was a problem to find the button to turn the freaking synthesizer on. It was a a $300,000 synthesizer. There was a sampler synthesizer. It was, like, unbelievable. But I got it up and running. I got it on sessions. And then I became known as the Fairlight programmer. So in life, when you're given the opportunity and you want it, go do it. You could do it. And I became great at programming the Fairlight and then all the other synthesizers. And then people heard me when I engineers would put up the tapes. I would start playing the synthesizers along with the tracks. Some of the producers said, oh, my God, I didn't know you played. So then you get like the playing gig and then arranging, then you get the producing, then you get the songwriting, and then it just snowballed. So my point is everything's an opportunity. Everything is an opportunity, as you said, to grow. And even if you don't think you're growing, well, guess what? Everything's changing and you're changing every day and you're growing every day. And just realize that and go after that passion and you never know where it's going to lead you. So how Just like I thought getting fired, you know, for my first job (laughs) in New York City was going to like on day one was like, oh, my God. Well, what happens if this guy doesn't like me at the studio? You know, I'm walking in there saying to myself. Maybe I could go back, but the guy that I just wrote this music for must like me. I mean, it got the commercial, and it was like crazy, but you never know where your life takes you. Then you build that network. You build that network of people. You need that network. You need your network. If you don't have your network, you know, you're never going to get anything off the ground, right? You need help, and you need that network, and that's the next thing that you have to build once you get somewhere. So how did you start working with Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel? And what hit songs did you write for them? So it's called the publishing deal, right? So what what happens in a publishing deal is how that started with Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel. I I am myself and another great musician out of Unique Recording Studios. We formed something called Trailblazers. And we produced a ton of albums, tons of remixes, lots of stuff. His name was Kenan. And uh, we were just, he was a great engineer. I was a great, you know, arranger, keyboard player. And we were just sometimes doing two sessions a day. And people were taking notice of the production. And they said, let's 
if you're a producer, what, ha- what, what happens often in songwriting, unfortunately, is that a lot of artists want to get their names on the songs, whether they wrote it or not. And for them to sing the song, even if they didn't write it, they take credit for it. So it's a really nasty business. And, and songwriting has been a nasty business since the Tin Pan Alley days of people just being hired. Today, it happens more in hip hop where you know lots of people are creating beats and then those beats get bought. I was just talking to someone the other day that, you know, I heard this beat, it was great. And they bought it from this guy for $200,000. You'll never see the credit for it, but we got $200,000. So it's, um, it's a really interesting world, the songwriting world. And there's a whole world of selling beats for hip hop artists and stuff like that. But it's about the passion, though. At the end of the day, you'll plug through. So what happened was that Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel liked our stuff. And they said, okay, you know what? We want you to be with us because you're producing all these records. You'll get songwriting. And songwriting is where the money is, right? Because in the music industry, the money really comes first to the songwriter an artist on an album has to recoup the money that was laid out to make the album, right? They don't get dollar one till the money is recouped. And then that money is split with the record label. But a songwriter, it's different. But you can't recoup the money on the songwriting fees. So the songwriting fees go, they call it mechanicals. Those are one for sales. And then they call airplay. So there's organizations like BNI and ASCAP that get you that money that way. So the songwriter is actually getting the money early. And the songwriting person sells their publishing to also get advances on money. It, it's, it's a whole complicated thing, but it's, it's an exciting industry, and it was an industry that was great to me. I also had my own album deal called Enchanted, where I took classical music and combined it with dance music and hip-hop and chanters, and that was a big hit in the mid-'90s. So... I also pioneered the enhanced CD technology for the music industry. So I took, when I stopped working in the studio after we had our first child right away and realized that I needed to be home more to help raise my son, I took the family first attitude and I went and the internet was just starting up in the late 90s. And of course, I was always into technology and I used that to help propel the music field into the technology. I pioneered the Enhanced CD technology for the music industry. And what is that? What are Enhanced CDs? Okay, great. So the Enhanced CD is when you put, there was extra, I was flying back from California to New York and I was sitting next to a guy from Earthlink and Earthlink was an internet service provider. And we're talking about disks and disk space and a CD had lots of room on the disc. Like the music only took up a small part of the disc. And I realized right there that we could put other things on the disc besides music to help an artist better connect with his fans. And a way to monetize that would be to take an internet service provider. I don't know if you remember when the internet was starting that AOL would send out this, Earthlink would send out this, all these service providers would send out this to get you online, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I took that software and put it on artist CDs and opened up a whole new revenue stream for artists. The biggest success that I had with the enhanced CD was with AOL and the Wu-Tang Clan. And I made the Wu Mansion. So I took all the members of the Wu-Tang Clan and made a Wu Mansion. 
<laughs> and made their own rooms. And what was important to them was put in that room. And the only way that you could get access to it is if you did a trial on AOL to access the Wu-Tang Mansion. And the Wu-Tang Forever album was a anticipated album. I think it sold five or six million this worldwide, two million the first week. Wow. So you can imagine that we had over 250,000 people that signed up to AOL as a trial from the Wu-Tang album. And we got money for everybody that signed up, money for every disc distributed, and money for every time someone actually took out the full subscription. So an incredible amount of revenue was generated just from that enhanced CD, a part of it. And that's how I got over to Interscope Records, where Jimmy Iovine saw me on CNBC, and I was written up in the journal. And he remembered me from playing music, you know, keyboards in the studio days. And he's like, come do it for me. And, you know, I had a good run on Interscope. I had to leave Interscope when my son got diagnosed with juvenile diabetes because they wanted me to move out to the West Coast to take a bigger role and help to run digital, the Universal Music Group. But that's where my life started taking different directions. And I can't be thankful enough for the life that God blessed me with. So that was why, after almost 20 years in the music industry, that you ended up charting a new course. Yeah, I had to, because three years old and in the early 2000s, diabetes wasn't the day-to-day -day maintenance of it for someone that has juvenile diabetes wasn't there like it is today. There was no pump for my three-year-old son. It was all about needles and shots 24 hours a day. It was all about myself and my wife waking up you know, every two hours. And God prepared me for that, right? I was also working a lot of time in the music industry through the nights. And even at Eastman, you always wrote better at night, right? <laughs> After 12 o'clock, you, you always wrote better at night. It was quiet. And also you were writing till the end, right? <laughs> till the stuff was due right until the minute the stuff was due. So you're waiting for that inspiration, right? It's just not like you turn on the water. It's, you know, you got to have some inspiration here. But it's interesting because the whole thing about it is, that you know, I was prepared to help deal with my son with diabetes even before just by the lack of sleep that we had for several years because you have to check him every two hours. So my wife would check him at midnight and I would do two and four. And then she would do six and I would wake up at eight or nine and then go to work. So it was that was our life for about five years. And um, I couldn't move out to L.A. without any family support. All our family was here on the East Coast. I had just some friends out there, but how do you do that? So it took me on a different course, yes. But I went with it, and I can't be happier that that happened. Not that my son got diabetes, but that my whole course changed for myself as it relates to work. So that was clearly a time in your personal life where you were faced with a, a massive challenge and had to pivot. Could you share a time in your professional life, Steve, where you really struggled and maybe you even failed? I would not call that first job where <laughs> the head of that music studio said, now you're too talented for us. You got to go to this other place. But if there has been a time when maybe something didn't work out. And most importantly, again, it's about how you persevere and a lesson perhaps that you learned in the process. Sure. 
and I repeated that lesson a, a couple times. One of oh God, there's so many times where things have failed, but not failed failed my expectation. Right? Let's let's be clear. From a young age, you go to competitions. You're not going to win them every time, right? Piano competitions. Some of you win, some of you you're not. You're not going to win you win everything all the time. Nothing really ever failed for me that bad that things just totally fell apart. I think the biggest lessons I learned is that, you know, you need to have the right right people around you to get something to work. And you can't do it by yourself. And Sometimes the things that failed me were more in the choices of the people that I chose that I thought were going to be effective around me that weren't. And that's really what's failed in my life. Hasn't really been anything disastrous that something has just flat out failed. I think, you know, in life, timing is everything, just like music. It's interesting. You could talk with all music and art and theater, dance, and everything. It's kind of all one big art, right? But, you know, I look at music is really how we decorate time. And timing is everything in music. It's not wrong notes, or this happened, or that happened in that piece. But it's how one of the classes I took at Eastman was, how do you make a wrong note swing? And everything's about timing. Everything in life is about timing. And you need everything to be aligned, almost like you connect couldn't have predicted it for something really to succeed. It's it's an amazing thing. But just like art, art is how we decorate space. Music is how we decorate time. And I believe those are the greatest gifts someone could experience those. And that's really their gifts that make us feel. And that's how I've taken my whole life approach. I have one final question for you, Steve. And and these questions, the one I just asked you in this one, are questions I try to ask all time for coffee guests. If you could go back to college, back to Eastman and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? The advice I would give myself is to have more fun there. Eastman's a very serious place where there's an incredible amount of competition. You know, you're with a hundred of the best musicians in the world from all over the world. And everything is so serious, so serious, so serious, so serious, so serious. College for me was, I was driven to succeed in what I was doing. And I think, I wish I would have had more fun, more fun while I was doing it. I practiced an incredible amount And it was fun to a certain extent, but I myself took it as if, and with a lot of people there, took it very seriously. So it's half more fun with what you're doing. I think that that I I try to do now as well. I don't take everything so seriously. You know, I laugh at myself more. I just try to have more fun doing what I'm doing because as times and the challenges for me were getting things right or scoring better in this masterclass or writing this piece greater or fixing these things. But you can't forget to have fun with what you're doing. What a fantastic note on which to end, Steve, because life throws so many curveballs. When you have those opportunities to smile, to laugh, to appreciate the friendships that you have, the opportunities, the good opportunities that come your way. Really revel in it. 
And for our young listeners who are still in school, and yes, these are unbelievably challenging times, and most of you are taking classes online, and you're not benefiting from the in-person experiences inside the classroom. I just hope that you are also looking for the upsides that this has provided you as well, because I guarantee you they're there. Oh, yeah. They're there. Absolutely. And I'm not sure if you recommended this book in this interview or was it the other one, but the most important thing also is your mindset. And people walk around saying, I can't afford this. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do this. You know what? Stop that right now. Change your mindset. I can't afford this. I can do this. I can do this. I will do this. And your life is going to change for those cans. You will be able to afford it. You will accomplish. You will find your passion. You will do what brings you purpose and meaning. Because I've had the fortune to meet all walks of life and from rappers that were down and out to everybody else and billionaires. And I'll tell you what, the only thing that makes somebody happy, it's not money. Get that out of your head. It's not money that's going to make you happy. Money's not good if you don't have anybody to share it with, right? If you don't have any experiences to share with, what good is your money? So really what makes you happy is when you find that meaning and purpose, which is your passion in life, and go out and do that. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't. Steve, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. If you want to learn how to break into the tech startup space, especially if you've got a music background, but really for anybody, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Steve's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Steve, you have inspired me. Wow. Oh my gosh, I didn't even get to have a coffee today. I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to make a coffee this morning, but you have filled me with so much natural caffeine and such incredible enthusiasm. I know it's going to carry me through the rest of this week and probably through the rest of the month. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was totally a pleasure to be here. Hopefully, this inspires even one person, but reminds me of one more story. There was a kid walking along the beach, seeing a thousands of starfish just banked on the beach, and he's throwing them in, and an older person walks by and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm throwing the starfish into the water. And he said, you're never going to be able to save all these starfish's lives. And he takes one of them, he throws it in the water, and he says, I did for that one. And that's all we could hope to do, right? And if you could do it for one person, inspire someone, you know, it'll carry for generations. It's a trickle-down theory, right? That's the trickle-down theory. How many people and families and lives could be affected by that one great act or kind act that you could do. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.